Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read this morning the first eight verses found here in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Continuing this morning in the series, What Grace Is This? There are but four verses in the New Testament with the phrase, This Grace. And each is written by the Apostle Paul. And they identify four different areas of the grace of God at work in the believer's life. We've already looked at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8 that deals with amazing grace. Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verse 2 that deals with available grace. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, we'll look at abundant grace. And then in a later message, we'll look at abiding grace as found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 19. But here in our text, just a little bit of introduction... Paul begins this passage with a brief discourse on the doctrine of justification. Justification is one of those big words that sometimes scare folks because we're not really sure what it means. So I want to take a moment just to address that. Justification is the judicial act of God whereby those who put faith in Christ are declared righteous in his eyes and are free from guilt and punishment. This is a decision made by God. It represents or pictures, if you will, a courtroom setting where God declares us who stand as the defendant uh, before the Lord or the accused, excuse me, before the Lord. We are guilty of sin and God declares through the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are righteous in the eyes of God. The word justified is in the aorist tense, which means that action took place in the past as a simple once and for all action with lasting results. All when God justified us, when He saved us, when He redeemed us, when we were born again, it took place as a result of that act in the past and now carries the results through the future. And what a joy to know that our eternal life is a gift of God, but it is in fact eternal. The fact that we have eternal life ought to bring great joy to the life of every believer. The problem for all mankind and why it is necessary for God to declare us just in his sight is that all mankind, every person ever born into this world, is at enmity with God 
because no one can flawlessly obey God's law or fulfill his will. We note James chapter 2 verse 10 says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. To break the law in one point, at one spot, at one time in your life, makes you guilty before God. This blows apart the argument that some people say, well, I live a good life. I do my best. I try to treat my neighbors right. I try to honor the golden rule. I try to follow the Ten Commandments. Well, try as hard as you may. You cannot obey God's word completely throughout your whole life. It's because we have a sin nature. Everyone is born in sin, Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Romans 5.10, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And that's the difference. Those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior are saved by grace. Those who choose to reject the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior are condemned already. People say, well, I don't believe a good God would condemn us. All the scripture tells us in John chapter 3, we are already condemned before God. This is why Jesus was born into the world, to provide a means by which we can obtain forgiveness for sin and a home in heaven. Two verses from Isaiah make this matter quite clear. Isaiah 48 verse 22 tells us, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. 32 verse 17, The work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Beloved, that righteousness comes from the Lord himself. Well, here in the first part of this chapter, Paul identifies four benefits the believer enjoys as a result of our being justified. Verse 1, we have peace with God. In verse 2, we see we have access into the grace of God and hope for the glory of God. And in verse 3, we have glory in tribulations for God. However, today, as we said, we're going to look just at verse 2 in keeping with this theme, this grace. For by whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The word access here literally means a leading or bringing into the presence of. It denotes freedom to enter through the assistance or favor of another. In fact, it's used three times in Scripture, here in chapter 5, verse 2, but also in Ephesians 2.18, for through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father, in Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. All three dealing with the Lord Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. This access involves the acceptance which we have in Christ with God and the privilege of his favor toward us. It is through Christ that we have obtained our introduction into this grace. Someone has put it this way. The thought is that of being in a royal court and being presented and introduced to the king of kings. 
Jesus Christ is the one who throws open the door into God's presence. He is the one who presents us to God, the sovereign majesty of the universe. This morning we're going to look at three factors which clarify this amazing and available grace of God. We'll see the person of this access, the process of this access, and the promise. Notice with me again, Romans chapter 5, verse 2. The first part of that verse emphasizes the person of this access into His grace. By whom also we have access. Notice it's through Jesus Christ that we have access into this grace. He is the one who throws open the doors into God's presence. He's the one who presents us to God, the sovereign majesty of the universe. John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Granting access into this grace was accomplished when Christ died on Calvary. But how? Let's back up for just a moment and consider the history of Israel. Throughout the history of the nation of Israel, both the tabernacle and the temple represented the presence of God among his people. Both were divided into three parts. You had the courtyard, the holy place, and the holy of holies. It was into or within the holy of holies that the high priest would enter once a year to bring the sin offering as an atonement for the sins of the people of Israel. This is outlined in Leviticus chapter 16 as well as other passages. It was the day of atonement. It was the time when the offering was made to appease God for the sins of the nation of Israel. The problem for all mankind, though, is twofold. Let's consider the New Testament temple, if you will, in the time of Christ. The Jew was kept from God's presence by the veil in the temple. The veil was a gigantic curtain which blocked access to the Holy of Holies. The priest could enter into the holy place, and there you had the lampstand and the altar of incense and the table of showbread. That was a daily practice. In fact, priests were responsible to replace the bread on the table of the showbread weekly. They were responsible to make sure the oil in the golden lampstand never ran out. And as well, they made sure that the incense was burning on the altar of incense. But only once a year could someone pass beyond the holy place into the holy of holies. This was a massive curtain that it said two teams of oxen couldn't open this great curtain. I won't go into all the details of that, but once a year the high priest would pass from the holy place into the Holy of Holies, to offer that sacrifice. Well, for the Jews, that veil prevented them from entering into or having access into the presence of God. Now, the Gentiles was a different story. The Gentiles were allowed to go to the temple there and see the temple, but they couldn't go any further than the court of the Gentiles. In fact, there was a wall separating the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple area. And each opening in the wall around the courtyard had a plaque there that warned Gentiles that should they pass any further going toward the temple, they would be put to death. 
So here the Jews couldn't get into access to God because of the veil. The Gentiles couldn't get access to God because of this outer court, this wall. So nobody other than the high priest had the privilege of entering into God's presence. But he could only do it once a year. But when Jesus died on Calvary, the scripture tells us the veil in the temple was rent, was torn from top to bottom. Luke 23, 45, and the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. Ephesians 2, 14, we see what that represents. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. For the Jews, he broke down the veil, preventing them from gaining access to God. For the Gentile, he made it possible for them to benefit from the gospel message and have access to the Lord. So now the gospel is available to both Jew and Gentile because of Christ dying on Calvary. The writer to the Hebrews says the curtain was a picture of Christ's body and being torn to provide access to and allowing us to draw near to God. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 20 through 22 say, By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here we have the assurance, we have the promise, we have the joy of knowing Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to gain access to the Lord. This grace that gives us access to the Lord and is therefore not only amazing, but it is available and it is available to everyone. But how has it been made available? Romans chapter 5 verse 2 goes on to tell us, By whom also we have access, by what? By faith. Not by works, not by church membership, not by being born into the right family. We're born in the right nation. We're born with the correct language. No, none of that matters. We have access by faith. This identifies the human means of that access. Believers in Christ stand in the sphere of God's grace because Christ has brought them to this position. He is our only means of access and we must accept His offer of grace by faith. Great truth with faith in Christ and Him alone is the theme of the entire Bible. Now, no physical evidence is given. No document certified by government officials is provided. No message written in the sky. Just faith in Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves... It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Interesting when you consider that word workmanship in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 means masterpiece. We are that masterpiece he has created in his image. And the fact that we do good works, it is not for the purpose of 
winning or obtaining salvation. It's not for the purpose of gaining the favor of God. No, it is for the purpose of fulfilling the will of God that is there for every believer in Christ. We are expected of the Lord to live for Him, honor Him, obey Him, and seek to be like Him. Christ gave Himself as an example, and by faith we follow him and do his will not by works of righteousness which we have done but according to his mercy he saved us by the wash of regeneration and renewing of the holy ghost titus 3 5 john 3 36 tells us he that believeth on the son hath everlasting life and he that believeth not the son shall not see life but the wrath of god abideth on him you know our lord has made it very clear in scripture You have eternal life or you do not have eternal life. If you have the Son, you have life. If you have not the Son, you have not life. John 5, 24, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. John 6, 35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. This is the message that Paul preached. We see this in the book of Acts, as well as many of his letters, but specifically Acts chapter 16, verse 31, when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail, and we know the story how they sang praises to God uh, there at midnight, and the jailhouse shook, and as a result, the doors were thrust open, and the jailer came in fearing they were gone and was going to kill himself. Paul said, don't do yourself any harm. He said, we're here. The man cried out, what must I do to be saved? Paul didn't say rush out and join a church. He didn't say find somebody and go get baptized. He didn't say you need to give everything that you have to a ministry. No. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That's the message that God expects us as his children to declare to all peoples around the world. That is the only message of hope for mankind today. It's not in religion. It's not in works. It's not in what we can do to find favor with God. It is what the Lord Jesus Christ has already done on Calvary to satisfy the wrath of God. We simply need to believe that He has done the work for us. Trusting in Christ and Christ alone. So what is the process by which somebody gains access to God? What is the process by which someone can benefit from this grace? It is by faith. Trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. Notice with me and also in Romans chapter 5, verse 2, the third thing we consider here. The person of this access into God's grace is the Lord Jesus Christ. The process of access into this grace is faith. The promise by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Scripture tells us in God's grace we stand. This word carries the idea of permanence, immovability, and firmness. Although faith is necessary for salvation, it is God's grace that has the power to save us 
and to keep us. What wondrous grace this is. You see, we're not saved by grace and then preserved by our works. No, we're saved by the grace of God and we are as well kept by that same grace. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul wrote to these believers and asked, Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? How foolish it is for folks to think that we need to work to maintain our salvation. Oh, they say, well, God saved me by his grace, but now I've got to hold on. I've got to do the best I can to persevere to the end. I've got to maintain a life that is pleasing to the Lord so that I can get to heaven because if I don't live a good life, I'm not going to make it. How foolish that is. The same grace that saved us is the grace that keeps us for his glory. And we note in Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. The performance of of that work, the performance of preserving us unto God is not our responsibility, but it is the responsibility of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture is quite clear that He saved us and He will keep us. What a joy to know. He is our Lord eternally, forever. Jude 24. Now unto Him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Beloved, he and he alone is able to preserve us, to keep us, to present us to the Lord. Two things we see in this last phrase here. For in this grace we stand. We're not sitting or lying down. We're standing I believe this could picture our service and labor for God. You see, we're not saved to sit and do nothing. We're saved to serve the Lord. And it's because of his promise of grace, we ought to do so gladly. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, notice this last phrase, which is your reasonable service? You know, it is reasonable. It makes sense. Humanly speaking, it's logical for us who are saved, who benefit from having our sins washed away, who have the the joy of knowing we will one day walk the streets of gold and stand in the presence of the Lord and be with He and our Heavenly Father eternally. It is reasonable for us who are saved, who are a part of the family of God, to serve Him. How foolish it is for believers to think they can live for God and not do anything to demonstrate their gratitude to Him. In this grace we stand. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know your labor 
is not in vain in the Lord. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Yes, in this grace we stand, but also in this grace we have hope. The hope of the believer is perfect assurance, confidence, and knowledge that God can and will do exactly what he said he would do. Standing pictures our service, but this hope pictures our surety. Christ has justified us. He's removed our guilt and shame and given us great confidence before the Lord. Our hope is based upon the presence of God's Spirit who dwells within us. That seal of the Holy Spirit who is the earnest of our expectation. We have the assurance of knowing that Christ will one day call us home. Again, Romans chapter 8, verse 24. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, what hope. 1 Peter chapter 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Yes, our hope in Christ leads us to look to him and long for his soon return. For when he does call us home, whether through the rapture or through the grave, we're going to enter through the portals of glory and stand in his presence. And that blessed hope is the assurance that that will one day take place. Yes, we have the promise of this access into his grace. We see the person, the process, and the promise of this grace. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The person of that access is Jesus Christ. The process of that access is by faith. And the promise of this access into his grace is we stand, we hope. Let me close with this simple illustration. The story has been told, referring back to an event many, many years ago. A little lad once stood outside the gates of London's Buckingham Palace. He wanted to meet the king, but was strongly rebuked by the royal guards. While stand there crying and wiping tears away from his eyes, a well-dressed man approached him and asked the little boy what was troubling him. When the man heard the boy's story, he smiled and said, Take my hand. He held onto the boy's hand and walked through the gates. As the boy took the man's hand and they walked along, he noticed the guards snapped to attention. He noticed nobody questioned where they were going. Nobody attempted to stop them along the way. They walked through long carpeted hallways, through wide flung doors, and passed a throng of people. The boy was led straight to the throne of the king of England himself. See, the lad had taken the hand 
of the Prince of Wales, the Son of the King. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He's taken us by the hand and led us into the presence of our Heavenly Father. And we can now enter into his throne room boldly that we may obtain grace and find help in time of need. What a joy to know this grace is accessible. It's available to us because of what Jesus Christ has done. And not just for us, but for every person throughout all the world from past to present. What wondrous grace this is. Next Sunday, we're going to look at the third of these graces and how that it is abundant grace. But for today, we've noted this grace is acceptable. Are you allowing the Lord to work in life in such a way that you readily enter into the presence of the Lord in communion with him? We have that privilege now because of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. Let's take full advantage of the privilege, the benefit, the joy which can and should be ours of standing in the presence of the Lord.